this episode we're going to be talking about the fight for the rights of women in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. In a lot of the episodes we've been talking about, we've been looking at the rights of working class people, the rights of unionists, the rights of ordinary people to try and get the changes that will make their lives better. But one group has not had any success whatsoever in gaining any representation, and that's been women. Women are not allowed to vote. Women are not allowed to stand for Parliament. And if there's one thing we've discovered, it's that if you are not represented in Parliament, you don't get any say in what goes on. So how do women get the vote? Well, it starts with three main groups who are active from about 1897 to 1913. There is the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, and at this point it's probably worth pointing out the word suffrage means the vote. If you have suffrage, you have the vote. There is the Women's Freedom League, and there is the Women's Social and Political Union. Now, all three of these are largely middle class, and all three of them want the same thing, which is votes for women. However, how they go about doing it is a little different. So if we have a look first at the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, this was created by Millicent Fawcett in 1897, and these are the people who are known as the suffragists. They believe in peaceful methods, meetings, speeches, letters, posters, the same techniques we have seen time and time again with the Chartists, with the Anti-Corn Law League, with the abolitionist movement. They wanted it to be seen as peaceful and reasonable because one of the arguments against giving women the vote has always been that they are overly emotional and they are prone to violent outbursts of sentiment and emotion and therefore can't be trusted to have the vote. So the idea behind the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, is that they will show themselves to be reasonable, calm and peaceful. The Women's Social and Political Union was founded in 1903, and this is a spin-off group from the NUWSS, coalesces in Manchester around Emmeline Pankhurst. She realises, from her point of view, that peaceful protest is getting them nowhere and they need to take more direct action. So she decides that she will found a new organisation with her daughters, Christabel and Sylvia, and they take as their slogan, Deeds, Not Words. And these are the ones who are known as the suffragettes. You get a further splintering in 1907, when some members of the Women's Social and Political Union, the suffragettes, split away from them because they do not believe in the increasing violence of the methods being used by the suffragettes. So this is the Women's Freedom League, created in 1907. They're also, incidentally, as well as campaigning for votes, the Women's Freedom League is also campaigning for equal pay for women. So we have some differences. We have a, a split between the suffragists, who are peaceful, and the suffragettes, who are violent. The Women's Freedom League, when they arrive, side more in terms of tactics with the suffragists. So we have the usual things, public speaking, creating petitions, distributing pamphlets, and they get some attention. 
However, it is the suffragettes that start to get more of the attention when they start using more direct action, such as heckling members of parliament, demonstrations outside the houses of commons, chaining themselves to railings of government businesses so they can't be removed quite easily. In 1912, they launch a stone-throwing campaign where they throw stones at buildings and windows. Nearly 200 suffragettes are arrested in that year alone. And then, and this is the thing you need to remember, today they would be called domestic terrorists because they start a campaign of arson, they attempt to break into Headingley Stadium and burn down one of the stands at the football stadium when the Prime Minister's there for a game. They send a bomb to the Prime Minister's uh, dwelling. In one case, they attempt to put a bomb in the toilet of the Prime Minister's cottage that he's going to spend the weekend in. So there are arson attacks, fire bombings, blowing up buildings. This is a serious insurrectionist violent threat to the established order. One of the things that gets a great deal of traction is in 1913, Emily Davison, one of the suffragettes, dies in front of the king's horse at the Derby. Now, whether she threw herself in front of the horse or whether she was intending to pin a suffragette rosette to the horse as it passed and it all went tragically wrong is something that historians will argue about some considerable time. However, the key thing is she dies for the cause, and she becomes a martyr. Now, obviously, the suffragettes are breaking the law, so they have to be arrested and put in prison. Once they're in prison, they use this to get more publicity by going on hunger strike. They refuse to eat as long as they're in prison. The government attempts to force-feed them, but this creates... Uh, sorry, force-feeding is where you take a tube and you force it down the nose, nasal passage, down into the stomach, and you feed food into them that way. But this, of course, is then creating propaganda opportunity for the suffragettes who put out posters showing how these women are being tortured in prison by the government. So the government can't keep them in prison. So they introduce what's called the Cat and Mouse Act in 1913. A suffragette would be arrested. The suffragette would then go on to hunger strike. Once she gets weak from starvation, the government would release her until she had started eating and she was healthy again, and then they would re-arrest her. This act is actually called the Prisoner's Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act, but everybody calls it the Cat and Mouse Act, because it is the government playing with the suffragettes like a cat playing with a mouse. The argument that you need to address is, were the suffragettes counterproductive? Did their violent methods, their direct action, actually hold off the opportunities for women to get the vote? It certainly didn't help with the core argument that women were unstable, untrustworthy, over-emotional, and these arguments pick up a great deal more weight that they cannot be trusted with the responsibility of a vote because look at how they're acting to try and get the vote. Then you get probably the best ever example of chance as a change factor, and this is the war. World War I strikes in 1914, I can't really say it strikes out of the blue because everybody knows it's coming, but nobody knows what kind of war it's going to be. And they certainly don't realise how it's going to soak up all the available manpower like a sponge. This meat grinder of a war in France is just chewing up all of the men of working age. The factories need to run, but there are no men to run them. And so women 
are pulled into factory work. So they are proving that they can do war work and still look after the children, still look after the homes. Women are also being drafted into work on the farms and on the front line as nurses and in factories. Women are proving that they can do the same jobs as men. This undercuts the argument that women are inferior to men and takes that argument out of the game entirely. Women have proven that they can do the war work and they can still look after the children, so that's taken that argument out entirely. And women also find themselves running family businesses because the men have gone. And that proves that they have the clear heads, the same logical approach that men have. So, what happens as a result of the war? It's not just about votes for women. It's about the idea of universal suffrage. The argument goes something like this. Working-class men who haven't normally had the vote have been out fighting for the war. At the end of the war, they need something to show what they've been fighting for. At the same time, women have shown they deserve the vote. So working-class men and women are granted the vote in February 1918, before the war finishes. The 1918 Representation of the People Act gives the vote to all men over 21 and to women over 30. However... The women over 30 have property qualifications. This doesn't mean that suddenly, magically, although they've now got the vote, the fight is over. Because at the end of the war, women have to leave the workplace to make room for the men coming back from the war to create their jobs. Women continue to campaign for all women to be given the vote. It's not until 1928 that women are given the vote on the same terms as men. So those are the key dates. In 1918, women, as a result of the war, over the age of 30, get the vote with property qualifications. In 1928, women get the vote on the same basis as men. Does that mean that women are equal? Does it mean that the fight is over? Sadly, no. Throughout the rest of the 20th century, there is a continual fight on a number of fronts. There's the idea of equal pay. There's about the idea of women having equal access to higher education. There's the idea of childcare, so that women aren't tied to the home. And, perhaps more importantly, there is the idea of contraception, birth control, so that women are not required to be pregnant, that women have control over their own bodies. And this takes two forms. This takes the availability of abortion on demand, rather than women who've always had to seek abortions having to do it at back streets, illegally. And also the idea of contraception. So what sort of success do they get? Well, in 1969 you have the Divorce Reform Act, which allows that women can divorce their husbands. Always before, it was only the man who could divorce the woman. Now the woman has the freedom to end a marriage herself. She can also claim property owed in the divorce settlement, rather than everything going to the man. In 1970, you have the Equal Pay Act. This is the first time in law it states that a woman should be paid the same as a man for doing the same work. And in 1975, the Sex Discrimination Act gives women protection in the workplace from being discriminated against on the basis of their gender. You cannot do that work because you are a woman. The key thing to remember, though, is that these are victories, but the fight is not over. Women are still not equal to men. They still do not have equal pay. They still do not have equal rights. They are still not treated equally in the workplace. However, if you compare 
the position of women now to the position of women in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1200s, you can see they've come a very long way. However, most of it has happened in the last 100 years, and it's only happened because they got that representation in Parliament. And it is the votes for women won by the suffragettes and the suffragists that give women a vote in the laws which lead to the Divorce Act, the Equal Pay Act, the Sex Discrimination Act, the availability of contraception on the NHS, the availability of legal, safe abortions. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.